Interacting with Japanese people is one thing you want to do when you are in Japan, right? You want to have what's beyond transactional conversations like I'd like to buy this item please or where can I find this place? You want to talk to people on a much deeper level. You'd rather want to have relationship building conversations and transactional conversations because you want to get to know the locals and learn about their culture directly. You want to experience how Japan is different from what you've heard of, read, or seen somewhere before. Or perhaps you may want to feel excited about some change from the last time you were here or appreciate things that remain unchanged. Am I correct? If so, one thing I suggest is to get a basic idea on the characteristics of Japanese people. Let's think about it. You don't feel nervous when meeting your friends, partner, or family members because you know them well and you know what they are like. If you are meeting people from a different country for the first time, you are more uncomfortable than meeting somebody you are close to or hang out with every day, right? What if you knew what they are like before meeting them? Would you be more confident in communicating with them? Humility is a word that is often used to describe the Japanese, and that's one thing you want to be aware of when communicating with Japanese people. By the end of this episode, you'll get an idea on what Japanese humility is like and where it comes from. Sounds good? The best part is that you will be more eager to meet and communicate with Japanese people and even come up with a question or two to ask them. So, if you are interested, Stick around. You are listening to Japan Experts, the podcast that helps you make your trip to Japan a truly unique and immersive travel experience. I'm your host, Miyuki Seguchi. My mission is to help you with planning and preparation for your trip so that you are totally excited and encouraged to make your next adventure to Japan. Today, I'm so excited to reintroduce an episode from the Japan Experts interviews because this episode is not only the most downloaded episode for the past year, but also one of my favorite episodes that reminds us of the important things in life. You may recognize the conversation at the beginning, but this is a full interview that you are about to hear. And the second half of this interview is definitely worth a listen because this gives a good foundation for you to better understand the Japanese notable character, humility. So if you want to get to know Japanese people better in order to communicate with them better, this is an episode you want to check out. This is a sutra that's often recited by Shin Buddhists, which accounts for the largest population of all Buddhism followers in Japan. Let's listen to the end. Please listen carefully to the very last after the bell sound.
You get it? Most Japanese have probably heard of it somewhere, even if they are not a follower of Shin Buddhism. But what does it mean? And why do Japanese people recite it? Before that, do you know anything about Shin Buddhism? Don't worry, even if you have no idea. Since you are here already, let's learn it together from scratch, shall we? Buddhism has greatly influenced Japanese society and culture, so it's definitely a good idea to know the basics. To dive into the topic, I'd like to invite Kenneth Tanaka, who is an ordained Jodo Shinshu priest. With his unique academic and professional backgrounds in Japan and the US, he has played a major role in enlightening people in Japan and elsewhere about the teachings of Buddhism through his books and other activities. His books include Ocean and Jewels, which are available online for free of charge. I understand there are so many sects of Buddhism, even within Japan, and the interpretation of the teachings and the practices are slightly different from sect to sect. Shin Buddhism is believed to have the biggest followers among Japanese Buddhism. So many people are supposed to be familiar with it, but the people outside Japan perhaps may have a strong image of Zen Buddhism for Japan, while others practice a different sect of Buddhism or a different religion. So could you share the significance of Shin Buddhism in Japan to start with? Okay. Well, you know, there are many Buddhist schools in, in Japan, and Zen is one of them. And uh, there are about 13 main schools of Japanese Buddhism. And Shin Buddhism is not as well known, perhaps, for many reasons. But I would say uh, Shin Buddhism is the largest school in terms of membership. I would say that 25%, at least, are of the Shin Buddhist school. And so that makes it the largest in terms of membership. And uh, the membership would be about 20 million. And, uh, and also... <laughs> In Japan, it, 20 million? Uh, in, in 20 million in Japan, and probably a little bit larger. But also, Shin Buddhism is part of a larger branch of Buddhism called Pure Land branch. And that includes another school called Jodo School, which uh, is a little bit older. But so with Jodo School and Jodo Shinshu or Shin Buddhism put together, we're talking about a third of uh, Japanese Buddhists. So it's in terms of membership and in terms of number of temples and priests that it is larger than Zen, uh, Zen Buddhism. And I should say Shin is known also as Jodo Shinshu or Shinshu, which means the true school of Pure Land Buddhism. So sometimes we say Shin, which means true school, but it means true school within the Pure Land branch. And there are other schools within the Pure Land branch. So Shin means truth. True, yes. True Pure Land school. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Of course, yeah. many schools all claim to be true. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's, not, it, it's not just true in a sense of within the Pure Land branch, but it would be about a third of all the Japanese Buddhists, which number a little over 80 million. So Shin Buddhism was founded in Japan around the 13th century um, yeah. by, by Shinran Shonin. 
Yes, um, yes. But this was sometimes after the Buddhism was originally introduced to Japan in the sixth sixth century, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's it, yeah. It took a long. There, there's a quite a history from the beginning of Buddhism in Japan to the founding of Shin Buddhism in the twelfth, well, thirteenth century. Uh, but it's part of the Kamakura Buddhism. You know, Kamakura period began is around the, the 13th century. And that's when not only Shin Buddhism, but also Zen Buddhism and Nichiren Buddhism emerged. So these three are today are the dominant forms of Buddhism in Japan. So Shin or Pure Land, Zen and Nichiren. But it came much later compared to earlier schools of Buddhism from the Nara period and the Heian period. So especially the Heian period, which about ninth century, started in the ninth century. And you have two schools called Tendai Buddhism and then Shingon Buddhism. These were the two main schools of the Heian period. And then about 300 years later came Kamakura Buddhism, of which Shin Buddhism is part. So how did the Shin Buddhism developed in, in that historical background, in the historical uh, context? Okay. Well, first of all, Tendai Buddhism was like the mother denomination or school, and it had it, oh, it still does have its uh, headquarters on Mount Hiei. Mount Hiei is located north of Kyoto. You can It's part of Kyoto almost, and you can see from Kyoto, if you look north the, it's a large mountain, and on top of the mountain is the headquarters of Tendai. So all the founders of Kamakura schools, including Shinran, and also Nichiren, and Eisai of Zen Buddhism, and also Dogen of Zen Buddhism, they all studied on Mount Hiei. So they were all Tendai monks. And then when they started their own schools, they were very much, of course, influenced by Tendai school. And going back to Shinran, he was also a Tendai monk, and he received his training on Mount Hiei, and his main form of training was Pure Land Buddhism. So Pure Land Buddhism has been around uh, much longer, even from Nara period, but especially on Mount Hiei in Tendai Buddhism, you had a Tendai Buddhism had different streams, including Zen and Pure Land and esoteric Buddhism and precepts where they emphasize precepts. So it was like a, a mother of all <laughs> uh, Buddhist denominations. And so Zen Buddhism came out of that, Nichiren came out of that, and Pure Land Buddhism, including Shin, came out of that. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about the Shinran Shoni because... Okay. He is considered to be a founder of yeah. Shin Buddhism. So what kind of person he was and what are some of his teachings that the Japanese are familiar with nowadays? Yeah. Well, he was born in Kyoto from a family of a nobility, of a lower level nobility. But his parents uh, were not around by the time he became ordained as a monk. When he was nine years old, his family, his larger family, his uncle had him and his younger brothers all become monks in a monastery in the, in the Tendai tradition. And so uh, he, you know, from the age of nine, 
Uh, he was a monk and he engaged in rigorous practice and studies up, up on Mount Hiei and um, till he was around 29, at which time he could not find his answers, spiritual answers. So he found it through his teacher called Honen. Honen was also a Tendai monk, but he had also left Mount Hiei to start his own Pure Land movement, a Pure Land group. And so when Shinran hit a wall, uh, he couldn't find the answer. He actually found his answer through Honen. And then he became Honen's disciple. He was there with Honen for about seven years. But they, the whole Pure Land tradition became persecuted by other Buddhist groups because they were gaining lots of uh, followers. They were becoming popular, mainly because it was simple and easy to practice for ordinary people. It was no longer a monastic Buddhism. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But so that was the reason for the popularity of Pure Land Buddhism. But because of that, it uh, generated jealousy amongst other schools. And also the emperor got involved and the leaders, including Honen and Shinran, were exiled. So Shinran then went to the northern part of Japan called now Niigata, where he was exiled for a number of years. And when the exile was lifted, he was going to go back to Kyoto to see his teacher, who was also going back. But he found out that his teacher Honen died. So he decided not to go to, back to Kyoto, the capital, but he went to the Tokyo area, which was you know less developed in those days. It was country more the countryside, the hinterland. But for one reason or another, he went there to propagate the teachings that he learned from Honen. And he was there for 20 long years. That's where he cultivated his disciples, his students. And then at the age of around 60, he returns to Kyoto until he dies at the age of 90. For 30 years, he was back in Kyoto when he did lots of writing. And that's why we have a lot, lots of writings from Shinran today, which he did when he went back to Kyoto. But so you can see his life was one of um, upheaval and propagation and in writing. But one thing I should emphasize that's unique about Shinran is that he got married and had children, six or seven children that he had, which makes him unique amongst the founders of Kamakura Buddhism and makes him really unique amongst all the founders of major Japanese religions because all the founders were uh, monks. So Shinran called himself neither monk nor lay. And he's well known for that. It's called hiso, hizoku in Japanese. Hiso means neither monk. Hizoku means neither lay or you know householder. So he, in a way, had a very interesting position in Japanese Buddhism. And so his followers or those who get ordained in the tradition were able to get married and have families. So which making it a very unique uh, school of Buddhism. So he, uh, Shinran is often compared to Martin Luther in, in Europe because uh, he got married and had children. And uh, so the comparison is uh, quite uh, common, especially in academic circles. So has his background affected his teachings in any way? 
as I said earlier, the teachings were meant not only for the monks and nuns, and it was one that anyone can practice. It essentially comes down to practice of reciting the name of Buddha Amitabha or Amitayus, or I, I will use a Japanese uh, Amida Buddha. Amida Buddha is kind of a cosmic Buddha, which re represents truth, or often we often say represents wisdom and compassion that undergirds our lives, that kind of um, constantly working towards us. And so by reciting the name of Amida Buddha, we are nurtured to a point where we attain a level of religious experience called Shinjin, S-H-I-N-J-I-N. And I say it's more like Satori in Zen Buddhism. It's not as well known, but essentially it's the same kind of a awakening to the truth of the workings of Amida Buddha in our lives and that we are one with Amida and in that realization, uh, we feel a spiritual calm and a sense of gratitude. And then we also recite the name. And the name, reciting the name goes like this, Namo Amidabutsu or Namu Amidabutsu. Namu or Namo means uh, I take refuge in Amida Buddha, Buddha Amida. And so it represents a sense of oneness with the cosmic truth, if you want to call it, which we call Amida. But there is no meditation involved. There is no rigorous precepts that we have to keep, but a sincere a desire to become awakened or enlightened and a sincere desire to want to learn from the heart, recite the name, which will, will lead to an awakening of sorts called Shinjin. I just wanted to check in to see if you are finding this episode useful. This episode is part of the Japan Experts interview series. What is Japan Experts interview series? It is a complete guide for you to gain knowledge about Japan. I have selected the best experts interviews that give you the foundation about Japanese religious traditions, ascetic values, and Japanese characteristics that are highly relatable to what you will see and experience during your trip. So if you are interested in accessing these full interviews, visit my website at miyukiseguchi.com forward slash Japan experts. That's M-I-Y-U-K-I-S-E-G-U-C-H-I so I have a, a story that I can tell you to kind of make it put this in the context. You want me to tell, tell you? That yes, story? please. Yes. It's often not easy to appreciate and understand when we talk about Satori and awakening, and, but in this story that I heard when I was young, and it applies to, I think, I, I've also been talking about sharing this story in Japan as well. And it goes like this. So there was a sailor who got on his ship, large ship, from a tropical island in the late afternoon and begins to sail. 
and about a number a few hours right before the sunset he and his buddies were out on the deck and they were enjoying the sunset all of a sudden the ship swayed vigorously and the sailor found himself uh, falling off the boat and the, the ship didn't see what happened so the ship just went and so this sailor is in the middle of an ocean and uh, it's choppy it's cold and he doesn't know what to do uh, but he can't just stay there so he begins to swim toward an island that he saw an hour ago and he said oh if i go there i can be safe so he begins to swim and falling off the boat and swimming is symbol symbolizes the difficulties that we face in our lives difficulties include you know old age illness death not getting what you want separating from our loved ones you know all the difficulties that we have in our lives but we can't just you know we got to do something and just like shinran he felt like that he would try to find an answer through buddhism on mount hie and so he engaged in practices the uh, rigorous practices and just like the sailor who's swimming very hard toward the island but he cannot find the island and begins to get tired and he starts to take in water and he finds himself sinking drowning and just at that moment he hears a voice from deep within the ocean saying let go of your striving you are fine just as you are namo amida buts namo amida buts and so he hears and says oh and he re- remind him of what he was taught and he relaxes his both of his uh, four limbs and what happens is that the ocean no longer pulls him down but he lifts him up and he finds himself afloat and saved and so he is really happy he is so happy that you know uh, a few seconds earlier he thought he was going to die but now just because he changed his attitude and let himself go to the ocean and the ocean represents amida buddha or truth or oneness or uh, wisdom and compassion that embraces our lives so just let's go so he is overjoyed but he doesn't just stay there he begins to swim again but now unlike before he has a newly found confidence that whenever he gets tired he can just let go and re- relax and the ocean will always support him that's the new found confidence and assurance and he's he's fine just as he is and actually the ocean well now the, he feels when he's swimming the ocean water feels calm and warmer but actually the ocean hadn't changed at all but the difference now is his attitude towards the ocean just like attitude towards life that whatever happens i'm fine just as i am because of the assurance of the ocean and so with that he was able to have more space in his heart to look around more and actually he begins to think about other sailors who were with him on the deck you know he hadn't seen them he was always concerned but now he has more space in his heart to think about other people this is the important part of buddhism or or any true religion you think about other people others not only about yourself because you are happier you are more confident also because he is able to have more space in his heart he can 
uses knowledge of the wind and the position of the stars. It had now become the, the evening. So now he can use his knowledge to determine the direction of the island. And he's now much more confident that this is the right direction. And he swims with ease and confidence and he arrives at the ocean. So when he's swimming with ease and confidence is a life of Shin Buddhism. You know, life is tough and life is a bumpy road, but with that assurance, life is easier to deal with. He also knows that no matter what happens, you're fine just as you are. So reaching the island is symbolic of, of the time of death. The life ends and you reach a safe ground called pure land. So that's why ours is called pure land. Of course, pure land is somewhere that I guess in a way you can say like heaven, uh, we go. But there in Shin Buddhism, you become a fully awakened Buddha. Because that, that is the aim of all Buddhism, or especially Mahayana Buddhism, is to become an awakened person. In a way, you are partially awakened when you let go and relax, but you become fully awakened as a Buddha. Now, this is not the end. The last part is that now he finds a boat, a small boat, and he's concerned about other people, his, his buddies on the, on the deck, his sailor buddies. So he gets on a boat and goes out into the ocean again, looking for them in hopes that he can save them, to help them. So in the same way, in Shinran's understanding, his teachings is that once we go to the Pure Land, we don't just stay there forever and forever, but we return to this world and other worlds where there are people who are in need of uh, guidance towards awakening, towards enlightenment, or towards becoming Buddha. So it's the working of an enlightened person is to, uh, you benefit yourself, but you also benefit others. So it ends with the, the movement to, to forever be part of this working, I call, I guess the English word is working of wisdom and compassion to help others. So the way, you know, this is the uh, general doctrine that, you know, we find ourselves in difficulty, we're saved to some extent, and then we are finally completely saved. And then we become part of this working, this um, movement of wisdom and compassion, which continues to help others, to lead others to the same kind of full awakening. So I know it's, it's a lot, lot of information, but it gives you kind of a general sense. One big difference between heaven and pure land is that in heaven, in the monotheistic religions, you go there, you're there forever, but you don't come back like in our pure land tradition. And, you know, how we come back, you know, that, that is mystery in many ways. Uh, Shinran doesn't explain, but we become part of again, this movement to help others. So that is one big doctrinal difference. Even though Shin Buddhism often looks and feels like Protestant or even Christianity as a whole, because you have Amida Buddha, like God, you have pure land like heaven. And the other thing that I wanted to emphasize was Shinjin. And remember when he let go, that was the experience of Shinjin. And I didn't translate it into English, but it's often translated as faith because you entrust in the ocean. 
So that's why, you know, faith alone, especially by Luther, Martin Luther emphasized faith, and Shinran Shinjin is often translated as faith. So you have these similarities. However, I just want to say that Shinjin is more than just faith. It's much more, more of an awakening, more of a realization, like I said, like Satori in Zen Buddhism. Does this story symbolize or signify the process of awakening? Can we say that? Sure, sure. Yes, Shinjin is awakening. Yeah. And then finally, Buddhahood, becoming a Buddha is full awakening. You know, the meaning of Buddha, which is a Sanskrit, Buddha is Sanskrit, right? And mm -hmm. literally means the awakened one, awakened person. So that's the aim of aim of Buddhism is to become awakened to what is true. So not so much believe in something, believe in something that you don't fully understand, but you awaken to truth, which is something that you ex experience. So you have greater confidence in that, what is being taught. Does it mean like you don't necessarily understand what the teaching is about or each small details about what the Sin Buddhism is about, but believing it, having a faith and awakening to the truth and have a greater confidence in that is important. Well, you basically accept the teaching that we are like the ocean, that we are embraced by a greater power, which is wisdom and compassion which cares about you, which cares about the fact that it wants you to ultimately become a Buddha. And then you can experience that in various ways in our lives. You know, uh, we often talk about how this Amida Buddha manifests through your loved ones, your family members, your, your friends. And so you kind of understand that there is this greater force of working that is part of our life. So it's not that you don't understand, you come to appreciate it, understand it, and then you fully kind of uh, entrust in it. And when you do, you have greater appreciation of life. And that is called Shinjin. So at the end of this story, this sailor arrived at the arrived on the island and then he will get on board to save his friends, right? So does it mean he's free awakened? Yeah, when he arrives at the island, he becomes a fully awakened Buddha. Okay. Yes, because actually he becomes partly awakened when he let go in the middle of the ocean. In the Shenzhen is, a, is considered a first level of awakening. You're not fully awakened because you still have your body and, you know, the obstruction to awakening in Buddhism is called the three poisons or afflictions. And the three poisons are greed, hatred, and or anger. And the third one is ignorance. So I often say gas, G stands for greed, A for anger, and S for stupidity, that you are stupid, <laughs> uh, ignorant of the truth of life. And then the truth of life, I have another acronym to, to talk about that. It's called the 
four marks of life, and they are life is a bumpy road, two, life is interdependent, third, life is impermanent, but life can be great. Okay, this is a kind of a, a everyday language that I use to explain teaching that is that uses more difficult word. So you take uh, life is a bumpy road, B, interdependent, impermanent, and great. If you take those, you know, B, I, I, G, you get, think big, right? <laughs> so the, you are, rather than being ignorant, seeing life for what it is, is essentially, so think big and that life is a bumpy road, it's not smooth, right? Opposite of bumpy, we tend to think that life needs to be smooth, but it's not. Life is a bumpy road. Second, we tend to think whatever we like or when things are going well with it, life is mine, but it's not mine that we can control. We cannot control even our, you know, children or for your spouse, you know, life is interdependent, the second one. And the third one is we tend to think life should always be the same when things are going well, you know, always. But no, life changes all the time. Life is changing. It's impermanent. And then and sometimes we get really down. We think life is terrible. Life is miserable. So life is lousy. Don't think life is lousy, but life can be great it's all up to you to transform the way you think from you know think big the opposite is small you know i i said life is smooth mine always and lousy if you take those four words it's s-m-a-l small <laughs> one less l <laughs> so don't think small think big although you know i must say that it's instinctual it's our instinct to think small you know we want things to go our way and it's okay to think that life is smooth or life should always be the same life is mine because in our world we have to make effort to you know make it in the world but we just have to just know that if we do that we are bound to suffer more than needed and so if you think big you become happier and more mentally at ease. Aria, you mentioned, so in going back to the story, you said like this era had the first level of awakening, which was like let go of himself in the ocean. What other levels of awakening? Are there any other awakening levels? No, I think uh, that is the main awakening in this life. I think often it is not only depends on, on the person, but it may not just be once in a lifetime, but it could be a series of experiences that you have in the rest of your life, and it can deepen your appreciation of your awakening. So it's not just once, but for some, it is one great experience, but you have others after that. So in one single life, you may have experienced many. Yeah, yeah. So many awakening. Yeah, processes. I, 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 uh, 
but often I think there are awakenings that are most prominent that you remember because it really changed your life fundamentally. And just like when Shinra met his teacher, Honen, at the age of 29, it changed his life. And after that, you know, he lived another 60 years after that, and he went through many experiences, but probably not as prominent or cataclysmic like when he had experienced at 29. And, you know, we experience different things and you learn new things and it contributes to your fundamental awakening that one had earlier. But the, at the age of 29, when he had the, the Shinjin experience, it changed his life greatly. And, and so that's why he even kind of makes a note of it and he talks about it. But he actually didn't talk very much about himself. That's why we don't know a whole lot as much as we would like. But through his writings, he writes about the teachings and doctrine through which we get an insight into how he felt about his own experience. But what you talked about through this ocean story and life is big. Uh, yeah, life is... Uh, Life is a bumpy road. We should think big. The think big is actually not necessarily Shin Buddhism, but it's basic Buddhism. Okay. So what I try to do is not only teach about, talk about Shinran or Shin Buddhism, but underlying the teachings are the other teachings from Shakyamuni. You know, the Four Noble Truths, four marks of existence, which is the big part. And so we need to know that those earlier teachings as a foundation. And the problem with Japanese Buddhism is that by the time Buddhism developed in the Kamakura period, in Zen and Nichiren and Shin Buddhism, we had distilled it to a very singular practice. You know, Zen, you just sit in meditation. And Nichiren, they also recite the name of the Lotus Sutra. And we basically talk about reciting the name of Amida Buddha and talk about Shinjin. But actually, I feel that in order to really appreciate each of the teachings, you have to know the basic teachings of Four Marks of Existence, for example. So Four Marks of Existence is think big. Yes, yes. And the gas, three poisons, is that basic Buddhism or is it? Uh, gas, gas. Gas. Yeah. Yes, it's basic. It's yeah. also part of the basic, basic Buddhism, Buddhism teachings. Yeah. Okay. In, in Buddhism, the obstruction to awakening is not necessarily sin, although, you know, but we call it, I'm using gas or afflictions or there are different names for it defilement, afflictions, and all that. But to break it up into three, gas best describes it like greed, anger, and stupidity. Yeah. And we need to let go to be enlightened. Yes. Well, so gas gets in the way because <laughs> we, want, <laughs> we want things 
We want things to go our way. That is greed. We all need, we all have desire. In order for human beings to live, we have to have desire, but greed is too much desire. And for ordinary people, too much desire, in other words, greed will lead to difficulties. For example, I was given an example. It's okay to have a desire to want to have friends, but if you want everybody in your class, school, to love you or like you, that is greed. And that leads to a lot of turmoil because to get to everybody, wanting everybody to love you or like you, that is too much. I mean, the reality is that there always be people who may not like you, who won't like you. So to see things be clear about how life is and see it for what it is and not to be colored by gas. And the importance is that life is, you know, difficult, but how we look at it, how we react to it, how we experience it is an important thing. And to help us, we have the teachings. And the more we, more we live according to the Buddhist teachings, you become happier than before. Life is more meaningful. Just like the sailor, before and after letting go, he's still swimming, but he's not desperate like before. He's, he has much more uh, confidence, gratitude, and he can see things better. And so that's the difference. So noting what we discussed uh, regarding Sin Buddhism teachings, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the customs of the Sin Buddhism, uh-huh. the practice of the Sin Buddhism as well. So my family has also been a follower of Sin Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was a child, a local monk had visited our house to provide a service to my family ancestor on a regular basis. And all of us recited the sutra together in front of the Buddhist altar. So at that time, so I didn't know, or I didn't even question what I was reading, but is sutra chanting common in Sin Buddhism? Yeah, it's probably the most common practice when we come together for a ceremonial ritual. And uh, so, the idea is when you're chanting, you're chanting the teachings of Shinran or the Pure Land teachings. So ideally, you understand what you're chanting, but many people don't <laughs> understand like yourself. You know, you, you just, you know, it's, it's mumbo jumbo. It's like magic. But it's not, it's not that way. It has meaning that is a teaching. So... And you ask, is it common? And it's again, it's very common in the ceremony. Not only the priests, but the lay people who are participating also chant together. So, and Shin Buddhism is a much more of a householder religion that includes the, the lay people, not just the monks. By the way, I need to say that in Shin Buddhism, we don't have monks, we have priests. So the to explain the difference, monks are male priests who lead monastic life, who don't get married. And most of the ordained Buddhist people are monks and nuns. But in Jodo Shinshu or Shin Buddhism, as I said, Shinran got married. So we refer to our Shin religious 
professionals who are ordained as probably the best English word for it is priests, not monks. So there are no Sim Buddhist monks. No, there are no monks. By monks, I mean those who, you know, who lead monastic life and who don't get married. So rest of, in many countries in Asia where Buddhism is strong, there are many monks and nuns, okay? So in Southeast Asia, in China, and, and so Japanese Buddhism is somewhat of an anomaly or an exception in that, especially from Meiji period, from about 170 years ago, compared to then, from that point on, Japanese Buddhism became less monastic. So the government actually encouraged monks to get married, partly to, to weaken Buddhism in the Meiji period. So Japanese Buddhism often is exception compared to, say, when I go to Taiwan or Thailand, people there cannot, they have a hard time accepting the fact that the the priests in Japan are married. <laughs> so Japanese Buddhism is more like Protestant Christianity, where, you know, Catholic priests don't get married, but the Protestant pastors do. So Japanese Buddhism today is more like uh, Protestant pastors. Yeah. So a person who had visited my house was married. So <laughs> Yeah, they're, 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 they're probably all married. <laughs> family yeah so that's why you can call them priests okay. uh, by my definition but they're not monks monks and nuns you know are a special group okay and that's the way you know most buddhist professionals are in other countries of where buddhism is strong but i think that um, this is probably a reflection of secularism secularism is as a process whereby religion plays a, a less of a role in society. So in the US where Buddhism is growing, monks and nuns are not very popular. There are very few of them. Most of the teachers in America, for example, are, you know, like Japanese Buddhist priests. They are married and lead ordinary householder lives. So going back to what you talked about earlier, so chanting sutra is important, right? But in yes. Zen Buddhism, for example, meditation is more emphasized, more... Yeah. No, no, in Zen Buddhism, chanting is also practiced, or chanting is important. When they have ceremonies, they chant. But besides the chanting, they have the practitioners doing meditation. In our tradition, in Shin Buddhism, we listen to the sermon. So we emphasize listening to the teachings and also reciting the name, as I mentioned earlier, reciting the name of the Buddha, Amida, Amida Buddha. So I think we should say both Zen and Shin, chanting is important. But in Zen, you have meditation and other practices. In Shin Buddhism, because it's for lay people, we cannot have people doing it all the time because they have to work and raise a family. So like, you know, churches in, in the West, people go to temple to hear the sermon once in a while, once a week or once a month. But at home, they have a Buddhist altar. 
they can chant the words of the teacher Shinran, but also recite the name Namo Amidabutsu. But it's not as rigorous as meditation is for Zen. So Arya, you talked about sutra for Sin Buddhism is the word of Shinran, right? So how is that compared to Heart Sutra, which is more common in other sects? Okay, I should clarify that. In Shin Buddhism, you have the sutras and the words of Shinran or writings of Shinran, okay? okay? So we have both. Just like in Zen, you have Heart Sutra and other sutras and the words of Dogen or Eisai, the founders, okay? So in any tradition, you have the sutras, which are basically words of the Buddha going back 2,600 years ago. In Shin Buddhism, we don't use the Heart Sutra because we have other sutras, which are called the Pure Land Sutras, which are central to our teachings. And people ask why we don't use the Heart Sutra, whereas many other schools do. I think the simple answer is that our teachers or masters didn't value it. That's why, you know, then they didn't use it. So it's not part of the tradition. Also, Heart Sutra, if you look at the content, it's very difficult for ordinary people to appreciate. When you say things like forms are empty or emptiness is form, what is emptiness? And emptiness is a expression of wisdom that comes with great amount of training. And so in Shin Buddhism, it is considered not appropriate because it's difficult for ordinary people to fathom and appreciate it. Emptiness is something that one has to truly experience and often requires a rigorous practice. And so we just consider Heart Sutra, though it is very rhythmical, it's short, and it's not included in our tradition. Okay, very interesting. So you have studied and practiced Sin Buddhism in Japan and other countries, such as the U.S. Compared to other countries, what notable practice do we have in Japan that shows characteristics of Japanese people? Well, of course, Japan is a home of the origin of Shin Buddhism. And so I would say that the uniqueness or the strength of Japanese Shin Buddhism is sense of humility, humbleness that we saw in, for example, in Shinran, who was asked, for example, about his disciples. He had many disciples, you know, hundreds of them, direct disciples. But he said, um, I have no disciples because those people who consider myself their teacher, they came to think that way because of the workings of Amida Buddha and it's Amida Buddha's doing and not mine. So that kind of humility and also introspection of the foolishness of oneself. You know, I said earlier that Gas is a, the obstacle to awakening, you know, greed, anger, and stupidity. But Shinran was very honest with himself, just like with the disciples. But he also said, I am 
wallowing. I, I'm sinking in the ocean of desire and lost in the mountains of fame and advantage. So he's saying, I have a lot of uh, three poisons, you know, gas. You know, Buddhism says greed is a source of our suffering. But he came to realize that he's full of greed. And he says, you know, even though I'm ignorant, I want to become a teacher for others. Or that outwardly we seem wise, but inwardly we are filled with gas or with the opposite. And our hearts are like the scorpions and snakes and scorpions. So I think that he saw himself as a ordinary, very human, and acknowledgement of that, I think, um, can be found in Japanese culture of a sense of humility, self-effacement, not to boast, not to brag. I think that much of this comes from Japanese culture and sensibilities, or Buddhism or Shin Buddhism has impacted some of that in everyday culture. So I would say humility and honesty are the qualities that we find in Shinran and thereby we find in, in some Shin Buddhists. Of course, there are exceptions. They're in every group, even in religious groups, there are people who are opposite of what they preach. But, you know, in a way, we are all that way too. You know, I, I'm saying... You know, I may be criticizing others who are not honest and, and humble, but I tend to be not humble, not, you know. So anyway, I think Shin Buddhism is not a tradition that tries to be a good person, you know, as a goal. But the object would be to see yourself for who you are with all your, you know, baggage. But it's saying it's okay because there is the Amida Buddha, who will embrace you and in a way lead you to full awakening. And when we realize that, we feel much more at ease because we don't have to pretend that we're always a good person or that we are wise and we are always compassionate because most of the time we're not compassionate and we're not uh, understanding. But to realize that will help you to become more compassionate, more understanding of others so anyone can practice sin buddhism yes it's open to all and that is one of the strength of shin buddhism in that it's not limited to the monastics and in fact it's especially for the foolish and the ordinary some people say for the dummies <laughs> you know so it's a universally accepting religion tradition. So my last question, how has Sin Buddhism changed your life? Well, hopefully I have been able to better understand myself, especially in the sense that I am uh, full of gas, <laughs> you know, greed, anger, and stupidity. I think that when you're younger, you think you know it all, you're almost invincible, but especially through the teachings, we learn that we have many shortcomings and we need to awaken to that. And by awakening to that, hopefully I became a, quote, a better person, 
not because I try to be a good person, but I became a better person for others, for my family and others, more tolerant, more understanding. So that's one. The other one is that I have basically overcome my fear of my personal death, which was one of the main reasons why I went into Buddhism, took strong interest in Buddhism in, in high school. So it's been a lifelong journey, you know, learning the teachings. And on the way, I've had series of experiences that have allowed me to come to accept my death without great fear and even terror to know that death is natural and that there is more to it beyond death. And so that is how the teachings have helped me to accept my fear of death. Hope you found today's episode useful and enlightening. If you have, visit my website at miyukiseguchi.com forward slash Japan Experts. That's miyukiseguchi.com forward slash Japan Experts. And check out the full interview on other topics too. These full interviews are only available on my site. So please do check out and let me know if you have any other interviews you want to access. I'll be happy to provide more content. That's it for today. Let's keep learning and create a truly unique and immersive travel experience together. Until next time!